Hello, hello, I'm Gabriel. And I'm Alex, and we're back with yet another bird episode, but this one is a doozy. Look, I know we're at the risk of this just turning into a bird podcast, but you got to bear with us on this one. It's worth it, and we'll lay off the birds for a couple episodes after this as, as a trade-off, but this one's I promise <laughs> it's worth it. It's an episode all about the goofy-looking shorebirds known as Eastern Curlews, or Far Eastern Curlews to some. And their scientific name is Numenius Madagascarensis. Madagascariensis. Yep. Something like that. (laughs) And I have no idea what that means, but Gabe's been digging around and I'm pretty sure he's found it. (laughs) This one is an absolute doozy. The last ones we've done this for, there's been some, you know, a decent uh, reason behind the names. This one, there's a hit and there's a big miss. So the (laughs) Numenius is the... Uh, the genus, which describes the eight species of curlews that there are around the world. And it's from the Greek words new and moon. So it just means new moon. And the reason for that is they all have uh, this sort of beak that sticks out and curves down um, and, and looks like a crescent shape, like a new moon. Very nice. Like we said last time, poetic. It works. <laughs> it's a nice descriptor. Madagascariensis, as you can pick it. Madagascar's in there. So you might think that these birds occur in Madagascar, which is one of... <laughs> The few countries which they don't really occur in. And these birds were named by a French guy uh, called Mathurin Jacques Brisson, which I probably butchered, but we're just going to forget that and move on. Keep powering on. Power through. <laughs> uh, and he named these. Um, and uh, there's uh, the thought is at the moment that Madagascar actually came from someone writing Makassar, which is a city in Indonesia where these birds do occur, uh, and got it. Horribly wrong. Yep, that looks like Madagascar. These things occur in Madagascar. And to this day, the species name for the eastern curlew is Madagascariensis. They have never been recorded in Madagascar. <laughs> Amazing. The mistake still stands. <laughs> <laughs> and so a little bit about the person talking about these. Uh, he's our first professor that we've had on the show. And his research focuses on migratory shorebird conservation but he also looks into conservation psychology and human nature interactions. He also happens to be possibly the most wholesome person I've met. (laughs) So get ready to hear about the incredible migration story behind these birds with big beaks and even bigger pecs. We talk Scooby-Doo style antics and all about the plight of the world's largest migratory shorebird. This is episode six of Life on the Brink with the Eastern Curlew and Professor Richard Fuller. Um. Well, I guess uh, to start off with, can you give us a bit of a description of what Eastern Curlews actually are and what they look like? The Eastern Curlew is a, it's a very large shorebird, big brown speckly bird. Um, it, it lives on the coastline. Uh, it has a huge, comically long beak, big curved <laughs> beak um, that seems almost impossible uh, to fit on the bird. And they probe into the sediment uh, and extract out uh, invertebrate prey that they're eating. They love eating crabs uh, and other invertebrates. Um, they're a large, stately bird, kind of standing upright. Um, so I think they're amazing to look at, uh, and they're also uh, vulnerable because they are such large-bodied species, and that makes them vulnerable to a number of threats. Um, 
what with their large bodies what 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 kind of threats makes them vulnerable there's been lots of hunting in the past um, of eastern curlews for example in tasmania there's these historical uh, records that kind of paint this amazing picture clouds of eastern curlews used to fill the sky over the orioleton lagoon as the birds were moving from their low tide feeding areas up to their high tide roosting areas and hunters used to kind of sit under these flocks and just pick birds out of the flocks and shoot them down and this kind of hunting was it went on for years and years and large numbers of eastern curlews were taken you know this remember this is a large bird so you get one of these that's you know that's a decent meal for for a family um, so hunting was very widespread uh, in australia and even today, we see hunting of the eastern curlew in various parts of its migration route. Um, so its large body size has kind of worked against it. Mm. So they're, they're kind of, I guess, similar in a way to how seal clubbing used to be the sort of thing, where they're just so easy to take down. That's exactly right. I mean, shorebirds are very much creatures of habit. They'll come back to the same spot of mud flat every single year when they arrive back in Australia on their migration uh, and they'll go over and they'll roost in the same spot you know their day to day it's kind of groundhog day they each of their days very very similar uh, to the previous ones and that means as a hunter you can once you've tapped into that and you've understood what the daily pattern of the bird is uh, you know that flock of birds then you can very much easily um, take advantage of that and of course, hunters are highly skilled naturalists in many ways. They really understand the organisms that they're after. In some cases, their livelihoods will depend on it. And then I guess hunting, you'd, you'd hope, has probably gone down a bit, but they are still vulnerable today. What, what are the, the new threats that have taken place of hunting in those areas? Look, I think you're right. Hunting has very much decreased in many areas of their migration routes, um, in part because there are fewer around and, and hunting is less easy and less profitable, um, but also because we've become very more and more aware that the species is in rapid decline. As I've mentioned that it's a migratory species, so you know, it migrates from the mudflats around the Australian coastline up into far northeast China and far eastern Russia. Um, and on the way, the birds stop in giant tidal flats in the Yellow Sea region, which is the east coast of China and the Korean Peninsula. And one of the really big threats that's been going now for many decades is the conversion of those big tidal flats uh, into other kinds of land uses. So sea walls get built around those giant mud flats um, that the birds are using as a kind of fast food joint to fuel their migration. And that's taking out the food resources that the birds need uh, on their way to and from the breeding grounds. The migrating is a big deal, right? I mean, it's a, it's a marathon. Um, it takes a lot of energy. But having said that, the birds are well adapted to it. They, they know how to do it. They've been doing it for thousands of years and they've got strategies that have stood the test of time. They know that they can stop at particular refueling sites where they know they can feed and they can 
dig their long beaks into the mud. But of course they show up one year and that mud flat has turned into a car park or a port mm. or a solar farm. Um, then, you know, not so good. What's worked for thousands of years suddenly doesn't work anymore. And the mm. birds try to scramble to find somewhere else, but very often they're, uh, they're so finely balanced, their energetic requirements that, you know, they can't really survive. And that's really the, one of the big threats. And we believe there's a number of other threats happening too. Um, climate change appears to be an important threat, um, especially on the breeding grounds for this species and many other uh, similar shorebirds. And also I think in the non-breeding grounds, so particularly in Australia, there's lots of disturbance around our coastlines. Um, and that appears to be another important issue for these birds. So these poor things, they're really getting hammered. And I think that's one of the issues with migrating species, right? They can be threatened in many different parts of the world, really. Yeah. Can, let, can we go into the migration of the eastern curly? Because it's one of the things that makes these birds so special. Um, can you talk through just how big of a journey it is for them to do every single year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's immense, right? I've already mentioned the eastern curlew is a large bird and it takes a lot of energy to get that thing in the air and yeah. to keep it going. Um, and the migration flights are enormously energetically expensive. It takes a lot of fuel. Um, mm -hmm. So in the run-up to the migration, so at the turn of the year, come January time, the birds are beginning to feed much more rapidly. Uh, they begin to change their diet to more energetically sort of profitable food. Uh, they're increasing their body mass, particularly laying down fat stores, um, which are essential for fueling the migration. Now, we often think about laying down fat stores as something that may be not desirable, but these birds absolutely have to do it, and they lay on huge amounts of fat. And some shorebird species can even double their weight. So they're layering on all this energy store that they can then rely on during the migration itself. They also do a number of other really cool things. They change their bodies. They change their physiology as the migration gets imminent, they'll start to reduce the sizes of all kinds of their organs in their body um, that are not directly needed to power the flight. So that when they start on the migration, everything is being channeled into the pectoral muscles, which are the, you know, if you want to see serious pecs, look at a migration. <laughs> <laughs> because they, these muscles, like the breast, muscles of a chicken right but imagine that really lean really powerful muscles powering this flight um all of their energy is being focused on powering those big muscles um all right it's 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 us cutting in <laughs> as rich was describing this to us all i could picture is like how people in the gym talk about bulking season and i'm just picturing these jacks like birds roaming around the mud flat. Oh, yeah. Hitting the protein powder. <laughs> Getting yoked. <laughs> putting putting our, our GM chooks to shame. When we were like planning or doing a, an episode on, on a migratory shorebird, the words serious pecs were not what I expected to come out of the researcher's mouth. 
<laughs> oh god, getting prepped for the winner. <laughs> I like how they're bulking with purpose, though. You know, it's not just oh, for the yeah. Instagram pics. Like they've got they're they're bulking for a reason, and they they can flex. And it's like you know what you you earned it. Yeah, yeah. We're we're bulking to travel further than pretty much majority of animals <laughs> ever will. <laughs> All righty, we we'll get back to it. <laughs> so the birds take off. They kind of get uh, into excited flocks, and they'll circle around together calling to each other. They almost seem to be excited by the prospect of starting on this amazing journey. They'll go up in the air. Quite often they'll go up and then, no, 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 they'll come back down again (laughs) and another go the next day. Um, And you can see them collectively deciding. And then one day they circle around calling and they're off uh, and they'll start on their migration. So the birds will... uh, uncannily accurately start to set a course for where they want to go now we've been actually satellite tracking some eastern curlews from australia and we've we've watched them real time as they're doing these migrations and occasionally a bird will come across a major storm event or something like that that's in the way of where it wants to go and it's incredible how quick, how early they can detect these things. So we've had birds turn right around uh, and come back to Australia because there's a big storm event over New Guinea or something like that. Um, sometimes birds take diversions around storm events. So they're overcoming obstacles as they go. They're adjusting the height at which they fly. Eastern curlews like to fly as low as they possibly can but then they'll go up to overcome obstacles or to get into better wind conditions if they have to. So these birds are making lots of decisions along the way as they go. Hey, uh, just forewarning you here, we're about to go down a very big tangent away from the migration route of how they get the tags on these birds uh, because they were the first ones to do it. Yeah, we're moving, moving away from the migration, but trust us, it's going to be worth it. It involves cannons, nets, and a whole bunch of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner stuff. So, <laughs> right. And we'll let you know when we're getting back into the migration stuff. One of the great moments was when we began um, satellite tracking the eastern curlews. Um, and we were trying to get tags on birds in the first place. Well, eastern curlews are pretty difficult birds to catch. Um, they're actually pretty smart um, and they're very nervous. And if you scare them, then they're not going to come back to that spot uh, for ages. Um, so we worked with an expert local group called the Queensland Way to Study Group um, over many weeks and months. Then they were carefully tracking where the birds were and getting ready to capture them. And as the, the first catches were getting underway, um, I became pretty pretty ill. I got um, severe pneumonia and I had to go into hospital um, for, um, for a few days. Um, but while I was in hospital, the first curly was successfully captured uh, as a part of this project and a satellite tag got fitted to it. And I'll always remember this moment. So I was lying there in hospital pretty sick and um, a whole bunch of people from the lab came in to visit me, which is really great and brilliant. And they brought in this photo of uh, the Eastern Curlew 
that they had uh, fitted this first satellite tag to. And it was just just the best feeling that, you know, there I was in hospital. These people were so excited about what they were doing. They, you know, came in to see me. Um, and not only that, they'd caught an Eastern Curry the night before and got a satellite transmitter attached to it. And at that moment, you know, the project was underway. We were going to find out about the migration. Just want to cut in with just how wholesome this moment is. He's got pneumonia in hospital and his team comes through, shows him a photo of the first bird they've managed to capture and tag. And he's just so excited about it. It's, it's, it's fantastic. What a guy. Like, he later told us this was probably his best day in the field if he had to nail down one. Uh, and it doesn't even involve him in the field. It's his team marking this momentous occasion that he and all of them have been working for for so long. And uh, yeah, we've actually managed to track down this photo. So you guys can see it. Yeah, it's up <laughs> on the Instagram, of course. We'll plug it at life on the brink if you want to see it and it's a it's a bizarre thing to look at without the story i'm going to tell you that it looks like a box strapped to a bird but uh <laughs> for, for these guys who had been working towards it for such a long time it was yeah it was worth shedding a tear for yeah it was pretty neat i, I was super happy with it um and of course it was a little bit um it's a tough decision about whether to fit tags onto these birds and ca- you know catching these birds is quite stressful for them um yeah. And they are an endangered species. So we were very, very cautious about how we did it um, and got, you know, very careful to get ethical approval and to think about it in great detail. So um, when you ca- what's the process like of actually catching them? Um, it's a cat and mouse game. Um, so the first thing is really weeks and weeks of careful reconnaissance to work out what the pattern is and to try and identify some spots where the birds are reliably going to be present. Then one day you go out and you you set up some nets uh, in front of that spot. In the case of species like Eastern Curlew, you can catch them with things that we call cannon nets, literally cannons, so which are giant steel tube. You bury them in the sand so that just the tip of the cannon is poking out of the sand. You string a long net between uh, two or three or four cannons, depending how long your net is. Um, You tie the end of a projectile to the edge of the net, push it down into the cannon, uh, and then obviously wire up all the cannons. So you've got this net with a bunch of cannons that are ready to fire out over the birds. Um, you then go and hide behind the nearest bush or behind a dune or whatever. You cover up the net so that it's as camouflaged as it can possibly be. Then you sit and wait. You wait for the tide to come in and start to push the birds up the beach. Then you've got this kind of lump in your throat, kind of, is this going to work? The birds are coming up the beach. And sometimes they'll just smell a rat and they'll just disappear. They'll see that something's different and then they'll fly off and that's it. It's game over for that. Yeah, bring in all the cannons and go home. But sometimes everything goes to plan. Uh, The birds come up the beach. Eventually, uh, birds get in front of the net. Um, The person who's running the catch will watch very, very carefully uh, to see exactly where all the birds are. 
if the birds are too close to the projectiles, they could, they'll be instantly killed when the projectiles fly out of the cannons, right? So there's a very well marked out safety zone. And if there's birds in that safety zone, the, the catch is called off. So once there are birds in the catching zone and the leader is happy, um, they give the command to fire and the cannons are fired. The projectiles launch out of the cannons and drag the net high into the air over the flock of birds and the birds are captured underneath it. And it sounds dramatic, but it's, you know, it's really a kind of Scooby-Doo. Uh, the net goes straight over the villain and, <laughs> and captures them. Um, the, the important thing is to run in quick. So there are many people there around to help. Uh, running straight in and gently extracting the birds. They don't usually get tangled up. They're just kind of on the ground with the net gently over them uh, and then transfer the birds into special holding pens uh, where they'll be for a few minutes or half an hour or so uh, while the birds are all processed. So that's the kind of vibe of how it works. It's kind of it's pretty exciting. It takes hours and hours and sometimes ends in total failure. But of course, sometimes you hit the jackpot. All right. It's us again. And we're just letting you know, we're moving back into the migration. We're finished with our massive tangent into satellite tagging. Uh, and remember, we're picking up where we left off, which is where the birds are fueling up in the south for this big migration. They've set off and we'll get back into it where the birds have reached the Yellow Sea. These birds will fly straight all the way to the Yellow Sea. So that's a journey of um, thousands of kilometres, so six, seven thousand kilometres, depending on exactly where they're from in Australia and where they land. Occasionally, birds will undertake very short stops, almost just to kind of just quick rest and shuffle off and carry on. Um, but they'll only have a really long stop once they get into the Yellow Sea. So that's seven thousand kilometres of direct powered flight day and night. These birds cannot land on the sea. They touch down in the Yellow Sea. I've mentioned this fast food joint that they all depend on. Thousands and thousands of birds all congregating together, all come from different places, all congregating in this Yellow Sea area uh, and excitedly feeding. So they land there and they're utterly exhausted. They've used um, their fuel resources up. They've or their body weight has reduced dramatically. But, you know, it's what they're built for. It's what they do. It's not, they're not weak. They're not uh, on the verge of death. This is what they do. And then the birds are spending a few weeks, in many cases, fueling up. Now, remember, this is in the northern spring. So this migration is happening sort of March, April time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still pretty cold. Um, at the top end of that Yellow Sea area on the eastern China coast. There, there may still even be ice uh, on the ground, ice and snow on the ground in some places. So the birds are kind of right there, pushing as far north as they can, feeding up, kind of waiting for the advancing spring. Um, and then as May starts to unfold and into very early June, the birds are then pushing further north as the snow melts. Uh, and getting onto the breeding grounds at the first available opportunity. Um, so the timing of the migrations is just beautiful. And that means they can lay their eggs and start to get their young underway just in time for the big boom in numbers of 
invertebrates. So it's, the whole thing is just beautiful. It's uh, a story of great endurance, of great physiological sort of changes and adaptations, of amazing navigation skills, um, which would put many of us to shame who rely on sat <laughs> in our cars. Um, and of amazing timing. These birds just show such beautiful timing. It's amazing. Uh, you hear from people who are far more adventurous than I that doing things like summiting a mountain, um, the descent is is often the most dangerous part. I'm assuming at some point they then have to get back from right up in the north of the planet to back down into the south of the planet. How does that does, – is that the same sort of journey back? It's a really good point, actually. And think about the – there's one very big difference in context between when they fly north and when they fly back south again. On the northward journey, breeding is ahead of them, right? They're getting mm -hmm. ready for the breeding season. So the the adults will be in breeding condition. Um, they're, if you like, keyed up. They're kind of ready to go and they're pushing north into that breeding grounds. And, you know, they're displaying and nature's taking its course. Um, on the southward journey, anyone who's got young kids, they're tired, right? They're tired. <laughs> they put a lot of effort into the breeding. Uh, the females invested a huge amount in uh, producing, laying the eggs. They've been running around after the youngsters. They're, they're tired. Um, so the adults leave the breeding grounds usually before the young birds do. Um, mm -hmm. And they just kind of want to get out of there. Um, and their yeah. self migration is a bit slower, right? The birds are more tired by this point. Um, and they can take quite a lot more time. Often birds are stopping more on the way back mm -hmm. south. And also, if you think about it, they don't have a specific target. Remember on the way north, their journey was mm. specifically timed to match the the spring emergence of all the insects right. which they're going to feed when they get up there. On the way back south, it's not so much time pressure. Um, they're more exhausted, so the migration tends to be a little bit more languid. languid. Um, but it's fascinating how the adults are going first on that southward journey. And think about it, you know, you've hatched out of an egg somewhere in the Arctic. Um, you've grown as a very young chick with these great big curved beaks, things giving you food, <laughs> that's all great. Um, suddenly they're gone. Um, you're fending yeah. for yourself. <laughs> these shorebirds do fend for themselves from a very young age, these chicks. They are quite amazing. But suddenly the adults are gone and the juvenile birds are there having never done a migration before. Mm. And yet they can still take off and get going at the right kind of time and get to the right non-breeding grounds. It's kind of, it's instinctive, it's imprinted. There must be strong genetic control of these migration mm. journeys, which allows them to do it even though nobody is showing them the way. And they only have other equally um, novice juveniles around them yeah. uh, to, to help suggest the way. Yeah. Do they end up in the same place as mum and or dad? came from we don't know that's a really good question we don't know for eastern curlews um my suspicion is that they're not going to be coming to exactly the same spots um, mm -hmm. 
I think the genetic controls on migration would be delivering them to the same region. But what we do know is that once they've undertaken a migration, they do tend to then visit the same spots year after year. It's incredible. These are baby birds are putting pretty much every human athlete to shame. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I guess to go back to uh, a bit more of a depressing topic, how many of them uh, actually left? Well, um, not many and far fewer than they used to be. Um, I mentioned Tasmania near the beginning. This species used to be very common in Tasmania and now has become, I'm afraid, almost extinct. There's literally a handful of eastern curlews left. And birders in Tasmania have been monitoring the eastern curlews since the 1960s. And it's one of the most depressing graphs to look at in uh, in biodiversity because it's continuously down over that 50-year period. Um, We've been doing a whole series of you know, mathematical analyses, the eastern curlew is declining between about 5 to 8% every single year. And it might not seem a lot when you first hear the number, but think about it. Imagine if you had $100,000 in the bank and it was declining by 5 to 8% every year. Um, you're going to be out of money and very disappointed pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And the same is happening for the population of eastern curlew. It seems that each year it just diminishes a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. The replacement of the adults by the young is just not keeping up. So overall, um, it's very hard to estimate how many are left um, because to do that, you really need to go count every single one of them. The latest estimate is that there's about 35,000 Eastern curlews left in the world at present, which one can only imagine is a small fraction of what was there 50 years ago. Um, It was once a very abundant species. Um, So this is worrying. It kind of sounds like a large number. It's not a large number and Mm. it's continuing to decline. So I actually believe that the Eastern curlew is threatened with extinction. Um, Hey, it's us cutting in again. You can hear a bit of uh, purpose behind Rich saying that, that they're threatened with extinction. And there's a good reason for that. When, when species get classified onto these lists of how threatened they are, it, it falls on a big scale depending on where you look. We use the red list, the IUCN red list, which is kind of the international standard. Scientists have a love-hate relationship with it because it has a lot of issues, <laughs> but it's also really simple and it's the one that you're probably most familiar with, like those words vulnerable, endangered, critically endangered. That's all from the red list. Um, so on that list, the eastern curlew or far eastern curlew, as it's sometimes called, is, is listed as endangered. Um, but Alex, on the other lists, they're not listed like that. Yeah, so the IUCN is this big international sort of listing, but then you've each country's government will usually have their own listing and then states sometimes have their own listings as well. Um, and so in Australia, the federal government has listed it as critically endangered, uh, but then each of the states have uh, like different sort of classifications ranging from vulnerable to unlisted. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> And so, yeah, it just builds a sort of confusion. I think on the state level, it's sort of based around whether um, the populations that come into those states, how they're doing, whereas the federal level is how they're doing in Australia as a whole. 
Yeah. And so when we do this podcast, if you ever hear us use those words like threatened and vulnerable, endangered, we're using the red list uh, when we do ours just because it's nice and simple. Um, but if you if you hear Rich saying threatened, um, that's not a like a category in its own. It's like any vulnerable, endangered or critically endangered that that's all threatened. So he's saying they fall somewhere in there. Um, but like you were saying, some some states don't agree with that based on the populations they survey and the and their own little criteria for what it means to be threatened. Yeah, exactly. And we'll uh, we'll, we'll let Rich get back to it. You know, I'm not saying that to be alarmist. I believe it to be genuinely the case that I think without significant change, this species is going to end up extinct before too long. Mm. Um, these, there are some other of these curly species around the world, so these big shorebirds with the big curved bills. And two of them have gone extinct in recent times, uh, the Eskimo curlew from North America and the Stenderville curlew from Europe. So curlews have a track record of disappearing to extinction, um, even though they had previously been quite abundant. So this is a species with, you know, significant concern around it. So I am very worried and it's very important we understand what's driving those changes and try to do something about it mm. yeah um just to uh ask a bit a bit of a brutal question but do you yeah, i guess in your honest opinion do you think that this species will make it through the next sort of couple of decades 50 years 100 years that's a really tough one that's a really <laughs> tough one um look i'd like to, i think it will I think it will, and I've become more and more optimistic in the last few years. Um, I remember about five or six years ago, I was just in such a state of despair over how fast the eastern curlew and a number of other shorebird species are declining. Um, you know, I was really had lost all hope. Um, mm -hmm. I was interviewed on a ABC. Uh, radio series which covered the uh, migratory shorebirds and I broke down in tears in that interview because I just thought there's no hope for these birds um, and of course when something you study closely is under such risk you know it really brings it home then and it really did strike at my heart and I thought this is just terrible and I see no hope I see a habitat for this species disappearing year on year. I see threats happening all around. The more I study, the more threats I see. It became very depressing, really. I do remember the first time. So back in 2008, there was a conference in Tasmania of shorebird specialists. It was a kind of shorebird conference. And there was people from all over the country. Um, so many of them were local people with just a local interest in shorebirds. So they may study shorebirds or, you know, they may be a, have a job. They might be an accountant Monday to Friday, shorebird fanatic Saturday and Sunday. So lots of people like that, um, lots of retired people who've, you know, devoted their retirement to careful and detailed study and monitoring of shorebirds. You know, and I remember talks on red knots and great knots and curly sandpipers and stints and, just all sorts of species and 
talk after talk was all about declines of these shorebirds. And it was it was actually quite emotional, really. There was about 200 people there, and you could kind of see the wave of collective realisation that there was something really wrong with this entire group of birds all around the continent of Australia, right? And it was really palpable, actually, how people were feeling about that and you could really see it um and amazingly in that meeting there was somebody some representatives from the commonwealth government from australia's national government and it was really valuable that they were there because they could see this story beginning to unfold and that really paved the way actually for national scale research um, to look at that problem much more closely so I think those that story really, I think, shows the importance and value of citizen science, of the power of communities and community groups to actually speak to big environmental problems and raise the flag and say, look, here's an issue. You know, many people still talk about that day, actually, and, and what it kind of meant for them. But it was also at the start of something big, and the scientific evidence began coming in, saying it's the habitat loss, really, that's the most important um, driver of decline for these migrating birds. You know, these stepping stones that they need on their way to the breeding grounds are disappearing. And without those stepping stones, they can't make it. And it became apparent that conserving that habitat was going to be absolutely crucial particularly in that Yellow Sea region that these birds depend on so much. Focusing on South Korea, on China, um, and also some attention on North Korea as well, which is, of course, a very different um, political system, very different kind of country, but a very important part of that Yellow Sea region as well. And then in 2018 came an enormous breakthrough. Uh, The Chinese government announced that there was going to be a moratorium on further coastal reclamation projects. So for the first time in literally thousands of years, because reclamation had been going on for thousands of years along the Chinese coastline, it was going to stop. And new major projects have now largely been stopped. Um, And that was a huge breakthrough. The single most important mudflat in the Yellow Sea was saved under that program, Was it, had a plan drawn up for reclamation that would have taken it out. That plan was shelved in 2018. And then there was even better news to come, and that was that the following year, the Chinese government nominated that really important site called Tauzini and the surrounding area as a World Heritage property. And Uh, Later on that year, the World Heritage Committee um, admitted that area to the World Heritage List, which is absolutely exceptionally brilliant. I was running up and down the corridor with excitement (laughs) because not only is that important in its own right, it's a very public message by Chinese government saying Mm. we value this place because it's a globally important stopping site for migratory birds. 
And there's even more good news after that. <laughs> Earlier this year, the Korean government has also um, come through and, and nominated a number of sites which have been inscribed as World Heritage uh, sites just this year on the uh, east coast of the Yellow Sea, on that Korean side. So I'm increasingly optimistic now that the eastern curlew will hopefully avoid extinction. Hey, uh, it's us again. Just before when Rich was talking about that third bit of good news about Korea also joining the party on protecting and, and, and listing some of this area's world heritage, that is South Korea he's talking about there. And we just want to emphasize how big of a win this actually is because in conservation, it is it is so often rare that governments listen to what the scientists have to say. And so that is just such a big win. It was absolutely amazing. Um, and it really brought home to me how conservation really happens, right? It's what, what you would wish is that, I don't know, the scientists would sit in the university, pump out some evidence, and then the decision makers would take the evidence and go, yes, yes, of course, that seems to be right, and then immediately change things. Of course, it doesn't work that way at all. Um, the real world is is, is swirling chaos. Um, and as scientists, we, I don't know, we try to throw some evidence over the fence. Um, and it's impossible really for scientists alone to actually make conservation happen. And also it taught me that there's a lot of chance involved as well. We have to be patient. It can take a long time for change to happen. And there's no use giving up and walking away. You know, we've, we've got to keep going and we've got to keep trying. And, you know, some, some stories are going to end badly and some stories, well, and isn't that cool when that happens? And that should keep us all going, I think. Definitely. <laughs> Um, just to go back a bit, we'd, we'd love to hear, and I'm sure the audience would love to hear as well, how, how you actually got into conservation to start with. Yeah, I, I've been interested in nature. I mean, since I was a, a young kid, like a really young kid, I, my earliest memories of nature are as a four, I must have been at least three or four because we moved house when I was four and I remember this this old house. So I was three or four years old um, and we lived in this house that was opposite a lovely oak woodland in South London, um, right on the edge of South London. And I used to go across the road into this wood um, and just love it and just explore around. And I just loved it. And I, I remember just watching the ants in this wood um, for hours and I would just sit there and watch them running around and, you know, follow them up trees and just watch where they go. And I just, I, for some reason, it just really caught my attention. And I can really pinpoint my interest in nature right to those experiences in the first few years of my life. And it was, it came out of the blue, right? Because no one else in my family had any strong nature affinity at all, really. I was a kind of odd one out. <laughs> my dad at the time was heavily into soccer and um, was a, a manager of a whole bunch of soccer teams and all of that. And, and I think he thought, oh, my son's going to be a star soccer player. This is going to be brilliant. And uh, I had a few games at soccer, but I was never a great, I was never particularly great at it. And uh, instead I grew into this awkward um, bird watching teenager 
And uh, <laughs> but to be fair to my dad, he kind of he, he strongly supported uh, everything that I wanted to do. Yeah, you know, it was brilliant. But it's just this kind of you know, sorry, Dad, I'm, I'm a bird watcher, not a soccer player. <laughs> but, um, it just kind of I got into nature more and more, and just became fascinated by it. I didn't really know sort of scientifically. So I knew that I wanted to do biology, right? I knew that from an early age. And so I studied biology at university. And I was really into behavioural ecology for a long time. Um, and just my PhD was focused on behavioural ecology. And while it was fascinating, it, it kind of dawned on me that actually I was really interested in you know, the declines and disappearance and what's going on with biodiversity and what can we do about that? Um, Post-PhD, I did a postdoctoral um, fellowship at the University of Sheffield in the UK and I worked in urban ecology, so a totally different field from what I'd been yeah, interested in before. And I kind of really loved it. And I think the reason I loved it is because it was right on this interface between people and nature. So in the case of the Eastern Curly, you know, why is its habitat disappearing? What are the drivers of that change? How can that be influenced and impacted and changed? And that's the story of the conservation, right? In many ways, the science is a very small part of that overall process. Hey, we're back. So at this point, Rich was absolutely racing through basically his, his life history, his life story uh, at a breakneck pace. And we wanted to stop him for a moment and ask about that decision he made or those series of decisions that turned him from the scientist into the conservation scientist. Because what we've seen in our five whole episodes we've done so far is <laughs> the big five. <laughs> uh, is that... Um, Pretty much everyone we've talked to started off in a pure science discipline and ended up in conservation because they couldn't justify studying how things work when those things might not be around in a few years' time. And, you know, we saw it with Daniela. She was talking about how she probably would be just studying the ecology and behaviors of glossy black cockatoos if they weren't dying. But the fact that they were dying around her meant that she couldn't justify not doing the conservation side of things. Yeah, and for Alex deciding which is more important to him out of science and film all comes down to which one has the biggest impact for the lions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dennis started in geology and then realized rocks <laughs> don't need saving. That was his words. Uh, and so we wanted to ask Rich if he would have just stuck with the behavioral ecology that he started with if he'd had that chance. Yes, I think I probably would have. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, like many of us involved in science in some way. I'm naturally curious and fascinated in nature and how it works. Um, and I think you're right. It's an interesting thought experiment. I think you're right. Um, I, I would have been happy with that. I would have stuck with it. But I think in some ways it's the, the dark cloud on the horizon. You kind of have to look at it. How can I study this kind of behavioral question when this species may not even be here in 50 years' time. It kind of felt like I shouldn't ignore the elephant in the room. So why birds in the end then? Why are we not sitting in front of Rich Fuller, the entomologist, who fell in love with those ants in the woodland? 
Very good question. Yeah, why didn't the ants? Um, why didn't the ant thing persist? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess there's a certain amount of randomness, but I definitely became pretty obsessed with birds fairly early on. And of course, it's it's notable that birds do dominate biodiversity studies. You know, I was looking at the Global Biodiversity Information Facility the other day, which is a giant database of um, 1.8 billion uh, occurrence records of species globally. But of the 1.8 billion, 1 billion of them are birds, right? Like the majority of what we know about biodiversity uh, is about birds. But I think there are some fairly obvious reasons for it. And I think those include that birds are just everywhere. They're kind of big. They're often colourful. They make usually pleasant noises, although not always. Um, they're very much in your life. And I think that's important in driving a lot of kids uh, into enjoying birds as one of their gateways into a love for nature. But I do think that, and I feel a bit hypocritical saying this, but but I do think it would be good for us to broaden our interests. Um, we, we always want to run through some audience questions. Um, so we might just try and do two or three of those. Um, but do you want to start it off, Alex, one of those two that you've got in front of you? Sure. Um, so Kate wanted to know if you have one bird that is like the ultimate bird on your list that you want to see. Oh, that's a really good question. (laughs) Yeah, look, there is one, there is one. (laughs) And amazingly, it's a shorebird. And I've always wanted to see this shorebird ever since, ever since I was really young, actually. Um, when I was, I don't know when it came out, I must've been 15 or something like that. This book on shorebirds of the world came out and, I was obsessed with it. I just kind of spent all my time reading it and loved it. I mean, I've still got it today. It's pretty moth-eaten now, but I've still got it. But one species really struck struck me. It was called, it's the Tuamotu sandpiper. And it's a kind of shorebird that lives in the remote central Pacific Ocean islands in the Tuamotu archipelago. And the evolutionary history is that it's likely to have descended from a migratory shorebird, um, something like a tattler probably, that used to migrate from the Arctic down to the Pacific and back, but seems to have stayed on in the Pacific and over time has evolved into a very, very distinct um, species that just lives on a few really remote atolls. Um, I want to go and see that thing and hopefully, COVID permitting, I'll be going there for my 50th birthday. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Um, I've got one from Tom. Do you know the longest, I'm assuming, single continuous flight um, a bird has ever done that you've recorded? So in the case of the shorebirds, the most impressive one is the bar-tailed godwit. Um, That species has been tracked flying a single flight from its breeding grounds in Alaska Um, right down to its non-breeding location in New Zealand. So it was tracked by satellite and the researchers didn't know how the birds got back to New Zealand. They they assumed they flapped their wings. They had no idea which route they took. At the time, they thought there's no way. There's no way they can fly across the Pacific. Sure, they just can't do that. 
but of course the birds haven't read the books they didn't know that limitation and again this is a powered flight so flying day and night for eight days continuously almost 12,000 kilometers across the Pacific Ocean so you get that wrong one wrong and you're you're in the drink you know you've had it it's a very carefully executed migration so it's just amazing that's incredible fly <laughs> Um, and the, uh, just uh, the the last question that I had was uh, I've just from Ben and he wanted to know if you've been on any cool bird watching trips l- lately, but obviously COVID's. Well, actually COVID's been a real, it's been a blessing in disguise for me in that it's really focused my uh, attention on our backyard in some ways, literally our backyard, but also figuratively. So I've spent more time traveling around Queensland than I have in previous years. So I've done some really cool trips recently to Mount Isa, um, the deserts around there, and a couple of places up in Cape York. Um, absolutely loved it. Uh, visited the rainforest at Iron Range National Park, um, and just last month, come back from Lakefield National Park on the Southern Cape. Um, so I think it's, you know, like many people, I think, I've, I've experienced more of Australia probably in the last year and a half or so than, than I have done before. Amazing. Um, we just had two wrap-up questions, if, if, if you've got time for those. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so the, the first one was just um, if people want to help out or get involved or learn more about uh, Eastern Curlew conservation, um, what, what would you be your recommendation? So if you're in Queensland, search for the Queensland Way to Study Group. That's a really good place to start. Nationally, there's a group called the Australasian Way to Studies Group, and they do same kinds of things, but they do them across uh, the whole of Australia. You could also reach out to BirdLife Australia, which is Australia's national bird conservation organisation. So those three organisations are well worth uh, looking up. And I think also as individuals, there are things we can do as well. I mean, if you're into birds, you, why not count some shorebirds? Approach one of those groups, um, ask them if there's a spot that doesn't get counted, and then you can make that your own. That will help fuel the, the science, you know, and the evidence base around this issue. So you can do something in that way. Um, we can all watch our behaviour when we're on the beaches, keeping our dogs on a leash, uh, keeping away from flocks of shorebirds and obeying all signs that we see. And the last question we, uh, we always ask everyone who comes on is, um, if you had one take-home message, even if it's you know two sentences of whatever long, that you think people should hear and should take on board a bit more in terms of eastern curlies, but also conservation in general, do you have do you have one thing that you, you you like to hammer home? I think people often ask me, "What can I do for conservation?" It feels like these problems are so big and they're so far away, and they feel so far removed from me, and you know. I'm only good at this, you know, what can I do, really? Um, and I always say, just do anything that you're good at. Um, don't try to be somebody else. You don't need to be like David Attenborough or like some other environmental professional or Greta Thunberg or whatever. Just be be yourself and use the skills that you've got um, in your corner of, you know, the environmental world. I happen to be a scientist, so I'm using my science skills uh, to do to help in this 
battle for conserving biodiversity. That's not the only game in town. There's many other things we can do. If you have a head for finance, you know, work out investment strategies and donations and gather together and organise and help create funding mechanisms for biodiversity. But there's heaps of different things we can do. Some of the most powerful conservation movements are very local ones that are started by uh, individuals concerned about a local issue. So if we all bring something different into this grand environmental fight, then we've got way more chance because we're bringing in all these different skills into it. So let's all do what we're good at. It's a great take home message. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, thank, thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Episode four of Life on the Brink was recorded on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara and Garingay people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It was and always will be Aboriginal land. We just wanted to say thanks again to Rich for chatting curlews and answering all our migration questions for well over an hour. And thank you so much for the migration video and photos. Check them out on our Insta at Life on the Brink podcast. You can learn more about Curlews, Rich and his team and the awesome work they do at their website, fullerlab.org. We'll also be posting some wholesome Curlew content on our socials later in the week. We're on Twitter at A Life on the Brink. We're at Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Brink podcast. And we're on YouTube. But really, I mean, if you're on any of them, just search Life on the Brink podcast. And I mean, hopefully we show up. If you haven't already, remember to follow, rate and review Life on the Brink on whichever podcast app you're listening to this on. It really means a lot to us. If this is the first episode you've heard, our first five episodes are also available wherever you're hearing this or via that website, lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Kyle Morley for our theme music and Jake Barnes again for my microphone. Thanks to Angus Mazina for getting the website up and running. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. See you next week.